This week, Windstream files for Chapter 11. PG&E admits its equipment probably an ignition point. Neiman submits final proposal to bondholder group. Dean Foods announces strategic review. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we on a weekly basis bring you the latest top developments in high yield and distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm Alex Brosman, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Adam Rhodes. Later, our Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher, sits down with the Windstream coverage team, financial analyst Stephen Opper, reporter Chase Collum, and legal analyst Karen Long to discuss the Windstream bankruptcy. It's Sunday, March 3rd. And we begin with Windstream. On Monday, the networking company took the market by surprise when it filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of New York. The filing comes two weeks after the company evaluated its options in the wake of Judge Jesse Furman's adverse ruling in the U.S. Bank v. Windstream lawsuit spearheaded by Aurelius. During the debtor's first day hearing on Tuesday, Stephen Hessler of Kirkland & Ellis for the debtors said that key issues in the case will be the, quote, economic terms entailed by the unity lease as well as the underlying spinoff transaction. Hessler said he anticipates that these topics will be subject of additional discussion in the case. As mentioned, later we will discuss the case in detail with Reorg's entire Windstream team. And PG&E, beginning with the news out of court on Thursday, included in the company's fourth quarter earnings release, PG&E said it, quote, believes it is probable that its equipment will be determined to be an ignition point in the 2018 campfire. As a result, PG&E included a $10.5 billion pre-tax charge related to a third-party claims related third-party claims in its fourth quarter and full year 2018 financial results. For the full year, the company's operating revenue fell 2.2% year-over-year to $16.8 billion. PG&E reported 2018 adjusted EBITDA, which adds back wildfire-related costs of $5.6 billion, down from reported adjusted EBITDA of $5.9 billion for 2017. On Tuesday, a bill was introduced to the California State Senate that would, if passed, require the state legislature to approve any change to utility Pacific Gas and Electric's capital structure or rates coming out of its Chapter 11 bankruptcy. State Senator Jerry Hill, who introduced the bill and re- who represents a Bay Area district that includes Palo Alto, Mountain View, and other municipalities south of San Francisco, said in a press release that the bill would, if enacted into law, give the state's legislature a say in how the reorganization affects PG&E customers. On Wednesday, during a largely consensual hearing before Judge Dennis Montali, Counsel to the ad hoc bondholder group indicated that case parties were waiting to hear from Governor Gavin Newsom on his administration's comprehensive strategy regarding the PG&E restructuring. Also on Wednesday, Judge Montali held a status conference on the debtor's preliminary injunction motion, and he set March 13th as a deadline for the debtors to file a reply in further support of the preliminary injunction motion and a response to opposition submitted by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, and certain power purchase agreement counterparties. The judge scheduled a hearing on the preliminary injunction motion for April 10th. Rounding out the week, on Friday, certain California public entities damaged by the 2017 and 2018 fires 
including the town of Paradise, submitted a motion seeking the appointment of an official committee of public entities in the Chapter 11 case. The public entities said that the office of the U.S. trustee had already declined their request to appoint a committee, but this decision was based on an incorrect interpretation of a bankruptcy code provision. In any case, the court can and should exercise its authority to form a public entities committee, the motion argued. Neiman Marcus disclosed in an 8K on Friday morning that an ad hoc committee of holders of the company's unsecured eight and three quarters slash nine and a half senior pick toggle notes due 2021 and unsecured 8% senior cash pay notes due 2021 and an ad hoc committee of holders of term loans have reached an agreement in principle on the framework of a quote, comprehensive transaction to extend the maturities of the notes and the term loans. Certain terms of the agreement in principle include that the unsecured note holders would exchange $250 million in notes at par into $250 million of My Teresa preferred equity. The balance of unsecured note holdings would be exchanged into third lien notes with a first lien on certain PropCo assets and a first lien on 50% of the My Teresa common equity. The ad hoc committee would also backstop $450 million of a $550 million issuance of second lien notes, proceeds from which will be used to conduct a partial par paydown of the Neiman term loan. Marble Ridge responded to the disclosure through a letter stating that the company's, quote, so-called final company proposal that has the purported support of a subset of bondholders merely seeks to pressure creditors to forgive the misconduct of the board and to turn a blind eye to the sponsor's self-enrichment scheme. The fund asserts, as must be obvious to all concerned, this so-called proposal does not have and we believe will not obtain the approval necessary to make it effective. And let's not forget this exciting news for all you shoppers out there. Close to us here in New York, a new 188,000 square foot Neiman Marcus store is set to open on March 15th in Hudson Yards. That's big news, Alex. Dean Foods announced on Tuesday that it brought on Evercore and Gibson Dunn as advisors for a strategic review. According to the release, this review could lead to, quote, the disposition of certain assets, the formation of a joint venture, a strategic business combination, a transaction that results in private ownership of a, or a sale of the company or some combination of these. The company then announced earnings Wednesday and said it would suspend its quarterly dividend. The dairy company reported adjusted EBITDA of negative $14 million compared with positive $87 million in the prior year period. CFO Jody Macedonio said on the call that a key driver of the decline was the, quote, anticipated customer volume exiting our system beginning in the second quarter as a result of the lost volume from Walmart opening its own milk production plant last year. Dean undertook a, quote, very large plant consolidation exercise, but has experienced higher than anticipated transitory costs. On the island of Puerto Rico, the Lawful Constitutional Debt Coalition, a new group comprising Golden Tree, White Box, and Monarch, which holds approximately $777 million in Puerto Rico's General Obligation and Public Buildings Authority bonds issued prior to March 2012, said in a Wednesday press release that it seeks to reach an equitable, economically viable restructuring that respects the lawful priority of early vintage constitutional debt improperly characterizes the PBA structure. The LCDC also said that it intends to assert the unquestionable lawful priority of early vintage debt 
and ensure PBA leases are properly characterized. Quinn Emanuel and Reichard Escalera are serving as the LCDC's legal counsel, with Miller Buckfire acting as the coalition's financial advisor, according to the release. Also in Puerto Rico matters, U.S. Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources Chairwoman Lisa Murkowski, Republican from Alaska, <clears throat> on Tuesday acknowledged a need to address the First Circuit's ruling that the appointments of the Promisa Oversight Board members were unconstitutional. The senator stated in opening remarks during a committee hearing on the state of the U.S. territories that while the First Circuit's decision was limited in scope, it could have broader consequences down the road if left to stand. Murkowski added, we are still reviewing this on the committee and could possibly take that up in the future. In related news, the Union Newtier submitted a petition on Friday to the First Circuit seeking a panel rehearing or a rehearing on banc with respect to the appointments clause opinion. Although the First Circuit ruled that the Promisa Oversight Board member appointments were unconstitutional, it declined to dismiss the Oversight Board's Title III petitions. The court also stated that it would not void any otherwise valid actions taken by the board because the board members were, quote, de facto officers who acted under the color of authority. UTIR takes issue with the second part of the opinion and seeks a rehearing on this question of exceptional importance. The union asks the court to enjoin and stay the Promisa Oversight Board from pursuing actions in the Title III cases until the board members are constitutionally appointed. Other top red stories of the week were... Second Circuit reverses bankruptcy court's rulings in Madoff cases addressing foreign reach of bankruptcy clawback powers. Cedrill announces consent solicitation for 12% senior secured notes due 2025, plans to launch contingent $340 million tender. Community Health Systems announces offering of $1.58 billion of senior secured notes due 2026, Proceeds to repay $1.56 billion under Term H facility. Next, here's Jim Holloway, back again with the week ahead. Thanks, folks. Greetings one and all. I am back, and alas, I am the bearer of grim tidings. At least for those among y'all whose job it is to update financial models and listen to management teams explain themselves. I mean, of course, earnings with which this week is larded like a Christmas roast. But first, starting off, we have on Monday, March 4th, the, the expiration of Ascent's tender for its 4% converts. Ascent, of course, being the parent of Monotronics. Tuesday, March 5th, we have the confirmation hearing for Parker Drilling. My neighbor's here in Houston. I think I mentioned this, but Parker's in the office complex on Richmond Avenue as Feige's, which does first-rate brisket and is only open for lunch. So uh, get them to take you there. And the aforementioned earnings, Clear Channel Communications and APX Group, both with results and calls. Wednesday, March 6th, on it goes. Results from Urban One and CPI Card. And folks, it just gets worse. Thursday, March 7th, everybody's going to be up early because we have results from GNC, Hovnanian, and Ultra Petroleum, which is one of mine. See how that vertical program is going. And just for you lawyers, a plea to jurisdiction hearing in Neiman Marcus. Neiman Marcus was, of course, founded in Dallas, I think in the 1910s or thereabouts, and catering to Texans who needed a place to spend their newfound oil money and spare them the questionable pleasure and expense of a trip up north to New York. 
I don't actually know I've ever been in one, but there are a number of locations in Houston, including one on the Energy Quarter right by the Air Liquid building off I-10. Not too far from there is a place I have been inside repeatedly quite a lot, probably more than it's good for me. A little joint with the best chicken fried steak between here and San Antonio. And on Friday, a bit of a respite, unless, of course, you cover feral gas, whose results are due. And there's a consent solicitation in Sea Drill, and in Puerto Rico, it's the deadline for the Commonwealth's 2020 fiscal plan. And I think that's enough to keep us all busy. Back to y'all in New York. Thank you, Jim. Now we turn it over to Mark and the Windstream coverage team. So I am here uh, today to discuss uh, Windstream with our whole Windstream coverage team. That was definitely the name of the week last year, actually, last week, actually the name of the last couple of uh, weeks, given what's been going on in the surprise situation. I'm here with uh, reporter Chase Collum, legal analyst Karen Lung, and financial analyst Stephen Opper. Uh, thank you. Welcome, everybody. Uh, so, very briefly on where we got here, uh, 2015, Windstream uh, spun off um, a division into what's now uh, Unity. 2017, um, that spinoff was challenged by Aurelius as a, as a prohibited sale and leaseback uh, transaction under uh, their indentures. And then um, fast forward another couple of years, uh, on February 15th, Judge uh, Furman ruled in favor of Aurelius and uh, said that it, uh, the transaction was in fact a um, uh, as an event of default, and that caused uh, cross acceleration uh, with all the, the entire company's capital structure. That was clearly a surprise. Um, certainly, uh, it seemed like a market surprise and got everybody scrambling, uh, which made it a very topical name. So, um, Chase, if we could just jump right into it. Uh, with that quick background. Um, after that ruling, uh, why don't you tell us what happened over the next uh, week and a half or so? Sure, yeah. I mean, so right off the bat on the evening of the 15th, uh, once the company had had time to digest the opinion, um, Windstream CEO Tony Thomas uh, released a statement uh, you know, saying that he was disappointed and frankly surprised by the ruling um, and, and that the company was planning to take immediate steps, uh, that they would pursue all available options, including post-trial motions and an appeal. Um, and uh, so early the next week, the company received a proposal for up to a billion and a half dollars of out-of-court bridge financing. Um, and that would have given the company some runway, but it came along with some conditions that management didn't think it was possible to satisfy. Uh, you know, the, the, the bridge financing would have required the majority of first lien term loan lenders to waive defaults and either pay the Aurelius judgment, fund a bond in connection with an appeal, or redeem and repay all of the six and three-eighths notes and refinance the first lien revolver. Uh, it would have required the majority of non-six and three-eighths note holders to waive cross-acceleration events of default. And um, interestingly, Tom, uh, Thomas said in his declaration that uh, any funding provided by Unity, the structure in terms of which remained 
undetermined potentially would have required additional consents under Windstream's credit agreement and other debt instruments. Um, so that was really interesting to hear that Unity was a part of all that. Um, so, But once it became clear that the proposal wasn't feasible for management, um, given the necessity of the cons consents uh, that would have been difficult to obtain at best, uh, and that other key stakeholders were unsupportive of the financing, uh, Windstream management then turned its full attention about midweek uh, from their telling of it towards uh, securing a dip financing package and preparing to file for Chapter 11 protections. Great. Uh, thank you for that overview, Chase. So that's uh, Windstream and what they tried to do. Why don't you tell us a little about the uh, stakeholders involved uh, throughout the company's capital structure and, and elsewhere? Sure. Um, so uh, likewise, uh, you know, just like with, with everyone else, as soon as this decision hit on um, Friday afternoon, uh, it sent everyone scurrying and and uh, looking to advisors. I think so. The first, uh, even before the weekend was over, um, the second lien lenders were lining up behind Millbank, and, and later in the week, the group uh, retained Houlihan as a financial advisor. Um, meanwhile, uh, Paul Weiss gathered a large group of first lien lenders, and um, by the end of the week, that group had retained Evercore as financial advisor. Um, and uh, also, uh, the holders of the small but unique series of Windstream of the Midwest notes uh, retained Sherman and Sterling as legal counsel, and um, uh, Wilkie Farr was hosting calls with unsecured note holders. Uh, so pretty much everybody in the capital structure was organizing uh, pretty immediately, even even before it became apparent that Windstream was going to be turning towards a, a dip. Great. Thank you. Now, now let's turn over to uh, Stephen. You know, what surprises me here, and I think might have surprised a lot of people too, is, is how quickly things, um, I, I guess, what the, need is, what the need was of the company in terms of uh, liquidity and how fast this, uh, the, the, the company uh, was forced into bankruptcy. And it's a large company, um, thought they did have uh, some cash, some liquidity. So why don't you tell us about uh, that liquidity situation uh, and, and what happened over that same uh, week and a half period? Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Windstream has typically operated with a relatively low cash balance. Um, the company received some proceeds, uh, a couple hundred million dollars, actually, um, towards the end of a year when they sold off some non-core assets. And uh, those proceeds were actually used to pay down the company's revolver. So the, the, the company heading in or prior to this ruling thought they had uh, around $450 million of uh, capacity uh, in the revolving credit facility. Now, once the ruling happened, uh, they basically lost access to that revolving uh, credit facility. And so they were limited to uh, liquidity was limited to cash on hand. And according to the company's cash management order, they had approximately $6 million of cash on hand as of the petition date. Um, and so you could see that rapidly uh, the company lost access uh, to the liquidity and that near-term liquidity shortfall essentially required the company to to use the bankruptcy process to obtain funds uh, for their day-to-day -day operations. Interesting. And, and we saw what they needed because uh, they 
uh, enter bankruptcy with a one billion dollar uh, dip, a new money dip uh, from from City, a new money dip proposal. So certainly, uh, liquidity is a pretty big uh, is pretty big issue here. So now let's talk about um, some of the big issues of the case, um, Karen. If you could, you know, one thing that we touched on was the relationship with Unity. Uh, Chase had mentioned, uh, you know, talked about the the master lease. Uh, what? Talk to us about the, this this master lease, how this might play out uh, in bankruptcy. Sure, I think the starting point for thinking about that would be uh, to just look at the master lease as an executory contract. That's a contract with performance remaining on both sides and kind of the tools in the toolbox of the bankruptcy code that are available to the debtors in how to treat that lease. Um, so, you know, the, the two main options for the windstream debtors are assumption of the lease, meaning continued performance, uh, cure of any defaults, and uh, providing Unity with assurance that they'll continue to perform in the future. Uh, the second option would be rejection of the lease. That would result in a breach of the lease and uh, Unity holding uh, an unsecured and non-priority uh, damages claim, a rejection damages claim against the debtor's estates. Uh, of course, in reality, the choices aren't that binary. The, uh, the debtors are required to assume or reject a contract in whole, but you know, in practice, that doesn't mean that contract counterparties can't negotiate, agree on amended terms, and then have the debtors assume that amended agreement. Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about you know, what the representatives of Windstream have said about that. Exactly, and 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 please do. And I want to put it into the the, the context of. Is this something that they're going to pursue? Uh, so, you know, Karen, if if you could, you know, first, what are, what are some of the quotes uh, that they said? I understand that um, Windstream's counsel made a couple of comments on the first at the first day hearing uh, on this about this lease. Yes, that's right. So, debtors' counsel from Kirkland and Ellis uh, emphasized to the court and told Judge Robert Drain that Unity is a very important relationship to the company, and he actually highlighted two aspects of the relationship that he said would be subject to additional discussion before the court. Uh, one issue, he said, is the economic terms of the master lease. Those were his words, the economic terms. And the second, he said, is the underlying transaction itself that was the subject of the litigation. He didn't really expand on that, but uh, but you know we, we have to think he means the Aurelius litigation. So that seems to indicate that the debtors are at least thinking about renegotiation, that amended terms are on the table, and that you know it's not really a binary choice between continuing with the unity relationship on current terms and just rejection of the contract. And of course, in practice, the potential for rejection is often used by debtors as leverage to renegotiate agreements in Chapter 11. Right. And um, actually, following on that, just yesterday, uh, along with Citi, Windstream hosted a call to discuss the terms of the DIP as they launched a syndication of the DIP financing. And um, CFO Bob Gunderman was on that call. And he responded to a question about uh, the lease and said, uh, quote, there's a chance that there is some negotiation around the amount of that lease outstanding, un 
unquote. So, um, you know, I think we've we've migrated from this is not an operational restructuring to the the lease is topical to there's a ch- there's a chance that there's some nego- room for negotiation. And so uh, it's just very interesting to see that progression. Actions speak louder than words. So, um, you know, uh, Stephen, why don't you put this in perspective uh, for us? How big is this lease? Uh, what, um, yeah, both basically both from the perspective of Windstream and uh, Unity, uh, you know, how important it is, is it for Windstream as a viable company to want to renegotiate this lease? And then Unity, what sort of a threat is this um, if that lease is renegotiated? Yeah, well, I think it's, uh, it's obviously the companies are very intertwined. Um, the infrastructure that's being leased by Windstream covers uh, a significant portion of their operations. And I think uh, in the in the call that uh, Chase just mentioned, uh, CFO Gunderman also uh, you know, stressed a number of times that the relationship and the arrangement is incredibly important for Windstream's ongoing operations. So it's not like they can just, you know, it, it's tough for them to, to downplay, um, I think, uh, you know, how, how meaningful the lease actually is. At the same time, it is a huge financial burden on the company. Um, it's a, a, a roughly $650 million a year with escalators um, in place. Uh, and now that that money that's being spent by Windstream to lease those assets um, is uh, a very high margin, obviously, for, for Unity. So it provides a, a considerable source of cash for Unity's ongoing operations. Unity's uh, acquired a number of assets recently in their infrastructure investments. They've also paid out a very high dividend to their investor base, and they have their own debt that they need to service. So the cash flow from that lease payment um, is is very meaningful uh, for both companies. Uh, you know, the companies have, have also talked about ways that can monetize the assets. And uh, um, for example, Windstream has an exclusive lease right now, but p- potentially there are ways to uh, maybe maybe uh, take some of that exclusivity away and monetize the lease for for both parties. Uh, we'll have to see if that happens as well. But either way, the lease is very important. Um, as far as Unity is concerned in renegotiating, I guess there are really two uh, questions. You know, one is if, if an event of default, what would, what would lead to an event of default under the credit agreement, under the Unity's credit agreement? And also what are permissible amendments to the master lease um, that, would be, uh, that would not uh, lead to an event of default? Um, you know, although a Windstream's filing triggers an event of default under the master lease itself, in order to trigger an event of default related to the master lease under Unity's credit agreement, Unity would have to terminate the master lease itself. Um, and Reorg is not aware of Unity providing notice that it intends to terminate that master lease. Uh, for the master lease to cause an event of default under the credit agreement, there must be an event of default under the master lease, and Unity must proactively declare the master lease terminated as a result of the event of default, and Unity must not have entered into a replacement lease within 90 days following its declaration that the master lease has been terminated. So there are a couple of things that need to, to happen for it to be an event of default under uh, Unity's credit agreement. Now, uh, it, it, Unity's credit agreement permits modifications to the master lease's payments subject to a pro forma compliance with a five times secured leverage test. So there is some room for Unity currently to, uh, to reduce those payments and I guess we'll have to see um, how this plays out. Great, thank you. And that definitely uh, frames part of the the discussion here. So it will be really interesting to see how this uh, plays out. Uh, Karen, there's definitely some other issues too that 
we are probably going to uh, to see. Uh, one of them uh, might be it's a little wonky uh, type of you know issue, and something that people have um, have you know have discussed is this OID, and I think it relates to uh, exchanges that were done in 2017. Yeah, it's definitely a little bit wonky, uh, but it is a conversation that was kicked off by Aurelius back in 2017, and they kind of uh, brought it up again after Judge Furman's ruling earlier this month, uh, where, uh, you know, after the opinion, Aurelius released a statement um, saying uh, that the exchange notes, the add-on six and three-eighths notes issued in the 2017 notes exchanges had what Aurelius called OID risk. Uh, and this was first raised in a letter in by Aurelius in 2017, where uh, Aurelius argued that the add-on notes were significantly less valuable than the existing notes, like, like the ones held by Aurelius. And the argument here was that the new notes uh, issued at a discount to par would likely have ori original issue discount for US federal income tax purposes, uh, meaning that their allowed claim in bankruptcy would be their face amount minus the unamortized OID. And, uh, you know, Aurelius ha uh, had sent some letters, you know, making this argument. And I do remember that at the time, Reorg reached out to Windstream, and Windstream responded in a statement that, you know, it disagreed and that relevant law supports its position. Um, so just to get a, a little bit further down the bankruptcy nerd rabbit hole here, you know, <laughs> the so the, the issue has to do with Section 502b2 of the Bankruptcy Code, which provides for disallowance of claims for unmatured interest. The question is whether pre-petition debt exchanges give rise to OID that should be considered unmatured interest uh, under that provision for purposes of calculating claim allowance uh, for chapter uh, in Chapter 11. So the argument here would be that uh, there there may be potentially a large uh, part of the add-on notes claims disallowed in Chapter 11. And uh, two cases that were raised by Aurelius in their letters may be particularly relevant for the Windstream case, uh, since Windstream filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of New York Bankruptcy Code, sorry, Bankruptcy Court. Um, so one decision is from the Second Circuit. It's called Chateau Gay. Another is a more recent decision from Judge Stuart Bernstein in the residential capital cases. Um, you know, this is obvious, you know, this is, could obviously be the topic of a much lo longer conversation, but, uh, you know, maybe the most important points to touch on are that in Chateau Gay, the Second Circuit allowed OID created in a face value exchange where a principal amount of old notes were exchanged for the same principal amount of new notes. Uh, and in ResCap, Judge Bernstein also allowed OID created in a fair value exchange where uh, a higher principal amount of old notes were exchanged for a lower principal amount of of new notes so um, you know those are the probably the the most relevant cases that we would look at and there just aren't that many court decisions that directly address this issue Aurelius has argued these cases don't apply you know the the windstream exchanges are quite different you're looking about you're looking at a debt for debt exchange where the 
principal amount of new notes was higher than the old notes amount, and the purpose of these exchanges was to dilute us. Uh, you know, a circumstance that certainly wasn't there in Chateauguay and ResCap. So we will definitely be looking closely at any more arguments about that issue. Yeah, and, and anyone, you know, as they start thinking about recoveries here, that's certainly uh, an issue to pay close attention to. Uh, so, Karen, while we're talking about Aurelius, uh, Windstream um, had some, uh, some, I guess, not so nice things uh, to say about them or some, uh, some threats uh, along the way in terms of how this uh, case might play out with respect to, uh, to Aurelius. You want to uh, discuss those? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. The, the first day declaration of CEO Thomas said, you know, first of all, maintained, we respectfully disagree with Judge Furman's opinion. And uh, the declaration also said that the debtors reserve their rights uh, to pursue all remedies, including equitable subordination. Uh, similarly, at the at the first day hearing, counsel for an ad hoc committee of secondly note holders who hold uh, about 80% of the secondly notes said, well, criticized Aurelius and said it would be a mistake to think, uh, to think that um, all unsecured creditors are equally eligible to serve on a UCC, or that all claims should uh, recover parry. And so, well, first of all, let's let's say he didn't mention Aurelius by name, and he called. You know, he said the elephant in the room is that the debtors shouldn't be here. Uh, but that seems to so uh, both in the Thomas Declaration and in the statement by the counsel for the. Second lien lender group, that seemed to be a suggestion. You know, we're extrapolating a little bit, but that seemed to be a suggestion that maybe Aurelius should recover behind other holders of six and three eighths notes uh, based on some equitable doctrine. So, you know, and, you know, he said this is a case of manufactured default, you know, and a CDS play. And, you know, I'm sure the likely response from Aurelius would be, we enforced our rights under the indenture, and we won. So definitely will be very interesting to see how that dispute plays out. Great. Um, a lot to, to look at, uh, and this will definitely be keeping us busy, and I'm sure as our listeners, keeping you all busy as well. So thank you very much, uh, team, Karen, Chase, Stephen. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And Adam, back to you. Thank you for listening, and that's another week. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts at our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg. I'm Adam Rhodes.